Good evening. My name is Sandy, and I'm an alcoholic. How would you like to have to follow that? I came into uh, Alcoholics Anonymous on Pearl Harbor Day in 1964, and I have not been drunk since that first night, and I owe it all to not drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Running late, I want to get right to the basics. (laughs) Took me a long time to recognize that drinking is what got people drunk. I used to think there was a lot of other things, people, problems, setbacks, and so on down, and it uh, just appeared to me that uh, it was impossible that the answer to this particular problem could be that simple, that if I stopped drinking, I would no longer be drunk. But I um, I know there's uh, some new people here, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that really is uh, one of the key elements in sobriety, uh, <laughs> is not drinking. and. Uh, Having said that, we'll move on to more exciting things, (laughs) because I already knew that not drinking was uh, the secret to not getting drunk. It's not the secret to sobriety, but it's the secret to not getting drunk. I had spent uh, several weekends in jail where there was no booze available, and I did not get drunk. Um, Didn't think much of it as a way of life, however. And I spent five months in a nut ward, and there was no booze available, and I never got drunk once in the nut ward. And uh, again, I did not think of much of it as a way of life, even though it was a day at a time, clay class, uh, basket weaving. We had a psychiatrist for a higher power. Uh, I don't remember what the 12 steps were, but I'm sure they had them. And all along the way, I was never impressed with the results of all of these great theories and all of these great uh, pronouncements about uh, this is the answer to various things. And uh, I suppose that tonight, for those of you that are sort of new to this uh, wonderful fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about the theory that may lie behind the 12 steps of this program, I would rather that you focus in on the results. And what you're seeing, I've I've often thought of Alcoholics Anonymous in two broad categories. First of all, it's the world's largest lost and found department. (laughs) Uh, We were all lost, and now we've been found. Uh, No matter where I was, I never knew where I was. Did anybody have that problem? Hey. And we came in here, and all of a sudden we knew where we were, and it was just marvelous. And I've often thought about that, because it's so much easier to think about our our past as being lost, rather than guilty. Um, it, it describes the illness much better than any other word. I was lost. I just didn't know where the hell to go. I could not get a sense of direction. I had no North Pole for my compass. I got a hold of a vodka bottle, seemed to be working for a while. It was emitting a signal, it said, follow me. I said, all right. <laughs> and it gave every chemical indication I was on the right track. But I kept crashing into mountains and having problems. And the results 
were terrible. The other thing that I think Alcoholics Anonymous is the world's greatest show-and-tell organization. <laughs> Remember when we were in grammar school and we all came back from vacation and we all went up there, well, what did you do? And we got up there and it was show-and-tell time. And uh, I think that's what an AA uh, conference is. Show-and-tell. Show-and-tell. Get up here. And this is how we advertise the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. We just parade an endless string of people, of all ages and sizes and races and parts of the country and backgrounds and we just bring them up for the new person who is not about to uh, look at the 12 steps on the wall and go oh boy i can hardly wait (laughs) we don't get attracted to those words we get attracted to the results of those words. And we keep turning to those words. And they're generally up on a wall somewhere. And we just go, you see that? This is what happens when you do that. And here's this one and that one and that one. And I think that's so important. That is what AA meetings do. That's what the fellowship does. We're just on display for the suffering person to see what is possible. Because for most of us, we never dreamed that we could become anything. And we needed someone else, an ex-nobody. to get up there and say I used to be a nobody now I am somebody and there's a wonderful man from the west coast named Chuck Chamberlain been in Alcoholics Anonymous for many, many, many decades, and he has a way of synthesizing the entire program. For those of you, if you ever have the opportunity to hear Chuck talk, I certainly wouldn't pass that up. Incredible. And he just summarizes, it just captures the essence of it, and he has um, gotten it all the way down to the bottom line. He finally, I suppose, in some one of his years of sobriety, recognized that what he was was no more, nothing more than a child of God. And that's all he ever wants to be, and that's all I think the program directs us to be. And I suppose that what my story is and what all of our stories is, is learning how to get rid of all the other things that we thought were important in order to be somebody and reduce ourselves all the way down to the magnificence of a child of God. And I look about Saturday night. Here we are on Saturday night, talking about being a child of God. I cannot believe that those two things would ever be said in the same sentence. (laughs) If you had asked me 25 years ago whether I thought I could imagine, and this is just using my tremendous brain power, if I could ever imagine some way to spend a Saturday night that I could, at the completion of that Saturday night, turn to my God and say, Would you like to hear all about my Saturday night? (laughs) And know it would please him. (laughs) That's right. You know? Because as far as I was concerned, everything that was fun was not on his list. (laughs) And here we have a whole room full of us that are here to celebrate the reality that it is possible. 
that the people before us showed us this, that the joy of living that this program gives us is all contained in what is going on here tonight. What is, uh, what do I think has happened to me uh, concerning all my previous ideas about what was fun and what I really wanted and what I wanted to get into and whether it was important for me? I'll tell you what it was. I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. That's the process. Sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous is an endless series of discoveries of one thing after another that you were wrong about. <laughs> and as soon as you admit it, you're free to move on. It's when you decide, no, I'm not wrong about that. <laughs> you get frozen and resentment set in. I don't want to be wrong again. And we go, why? Every time you've been wrong before, it was to your advantage. Every time you've been wrong before, it was great. Why do we still don't want to be wrong? That's our pride. That's being a human being. And it starts out the first time somebody goes, I think you're an alcoholic. No, I'm not. <laughs> and finally, kicking and screaming, you go, oh, okay, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I was wrong. I'm an <laughs> and then we meet, a, meet that same person a couple of years later. Says the greatest thing that ever happened to me was when I changed my mind about being an alcoholic. And then we go, well, okay, you're an alcoholic, but you need Alcoholics Anonymous. No, I don't need Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't need all those damn meetings. I don't. A few years later, we talked to him. The greatest thing in the world was I changed my mind about whether I needed Alcoholics or not. And, uh, and there it is. I think it's uh, life is divided into two stages. I suppose... Uh, we just start out as little kids, I did, and everybody else, and we're learning and learning and learning, and then we reach a turning point, as they talk about in chapter five, and then you unlearn and unlearn and unlearn and unlearn. And unlearn. <laughs> <laughs> and we go all the way back until we're a child of God again. So that's... <laughs> and then we go, why did I go down that road in the first place? I don't know, that's just the way life works. This is not the talk I had planned. I can tell you. <laughs> I was going to start out by telling you about Akron. <laughs> I just, I can't believe I went by that so fast, but, um, boy, I am, uh, I just have to share that one thing, then I'll get on with my story. But that was just so... You don't know. I've been in AA since 64. I've never been to Akron. And I thought about the Mayflower Hotel for the last 16 years. I just think about it in my mind, trying to recreate that moment. Because, you see, each one of us can, in our minds, imagine how God allowed Alcoholics Anonymous to get started. All right, that's my choice to think that way. You don't have to think that way. We don't have any written proof that that actually occurred. Uh, we have some rather dramatic results that have come about. <laughs> we don't have any written proof, but I just have this feeling, you know, that uh, God sat up there and there's been alcoholism on this earth for thousands of years, all the way back to caveman. Walking around and stepping on grapes. They got rotten. The guy on guard duty from the dinosaurs started eating them. And, uh, Dinosaurs are wandering all around and they're going, where the hell's the guard? And, uh, 
And they went out and he was drunk. And what's wrong with that guy? Get rid of him. And they got him out. They wouldn't let him back in the tribe. And they've always, us alcohol has been bounced out and ostracized and they've tried electric shock and psychotherapy and drugs. <laughs> And jail, and nut wards, and beatings, and tongue lashings, and admonitions, and yelling, and screaming, and firing, and nothing was working. And I think God said, looked up there and he said, this is going on for thousands of years, they're never going to figure this out. <laughs> never, 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 never! <laughs> and he took that moment, he took that moment to plant a thought in a human being's mind. And as far as I'm concerned, that thought came to Bill Wilson in the Mayflower Hotel. And it's, I just can't believe that a human being just thought it up all by himself. It just was given to him that moment to bust through our self-centered ego and our pride and reduce us to the state where suddenly one human being said, I need another drunk in order to stay alive myself. I have to find another drunk in order for me to survive. Meaning, I need you as much as I need myself in order to stay alive. And that's what's captured in all of Alcoholics Anonymous and epitomized here tonight as we've watched the wonderful love and sharing is the realization deep down in our heart that it isn't a question of choice. I really do need you in order to stay alive. And that makes me want to love you a lot more than when I used to be self-centered and my entire universe was me and you were blocking me from having a good time. You were in my way. You were taking up space. You were getting in my way of having the good things I wanted. So I never saw you as other children of God. I saw you as competitors. I saw you as uh, enemies or something. You were out there to be dealt with, not to be loved, and certainly not to be helped. Geez, I mean, i got to take care of me. Who's going to take care of me if I'm worrying about you? Everything here in the program as a result of that thought, I just like to think that way. That's what happened. That thought was planted there. And we have watched the, the growth of that single thought from that moment, and I like to think of the Mayflower Hotel as the spot that was chosen. I'm going, how did that, geez, isn't that something? Higher power chose that little spot in that particular moment in time, in 1935, to give us, and look what has grown from that magic spiritual moment. And uh, I think it's great, and that's why it was so exciting for me to drive by there, because I've just imagined driving by there uh, for a long time, and it finally happened today, and I feel good. And when I go back to Washington, I'm going to be telling everybody about it. I was there, man. I was there. <laughs> Prior to coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had a god, and his name was Vodka. <laughs> I was, I was just too old, to, there was no drug salesman around or anything. But boy, there was vodka dealers. <laughs> and, uh, and vodka does everything that a god is supposed to do. You, you just have faith in it. It helps you even when it's not in your system. It's sitting out in the glove compartment and just knowing it's out there. <laughs> Could produce peace of mind through the air. I'd go, oh. <laughs> Upset. Every so often you'd have to go out and check that it was still there. Even vodka has its doubting Thomases. And I went out there and I'd go, it's still there. And I'd go back in and I could get through the work day. Just knowing that in case some real grown-up situation came along. 
I gotta run out and get some help. Nobody should try and get through this world alone. Um, I don't know. I mean, I can't take the blame for ending up an alcoholic. I think it was my way of uh, finding this wonderful uh, way of life. And I think I'm pretty lucky. Other people take a lot longer and never find it or aren't driven down far enough to ever look and wander around in sort of a sense of mediocrity, sort of in the middle there, not having ever suffered enough pain to want to do anything about it. And in a way, I feel lucky that uh, this is what happened to me. The first drink that I took, I'm a primary alcoholic, the first drink that I took created a whole new world for me. Uh, I come from New England. I had been brought up in the uh, Catholic school, and I misheard everything that was taught to me. I became frightened and guilty, and I just thought about a punishing higher power. Okay, so I'm a little six-year-old kid. What am I supposed to understand the universe? It's, uh, it's nobody's fault. This is just the way it came across to me. You know, wow, it's real scary up there, you know. And uh, oh, this is rough. Um, and I never did figure any of that out. I just sort of tucked it away and said, I'll deal with that later. <laughs> when I'm through having fun, then I'll deal with all that serious stuff. Now, the problem is we have a conscience and we have a soul and we have a brain and they seem to function on their own. And every time the fun stopped, my brain would start thinking. And it would go, hey, we haven't thought about all that serious stuff in a while. And I'd go, quiet back there. I'm not ready to think about all that serious stuff. We gotta keep having fun, fun, fun. I suddenly realized if you could keep having fun, you would never have to think. And then you could go all the way through life and you wouldn't have to deal with any of that stuff. This is, Lord, those people that came before me were real dumb. I I was gonna avoid life until death. Hey! <laughs> And you know, I talked to other people that we all thought it was a great idea. I wasn't the only nut in the world. Right? Hey, good plan, good plan. Let's avoid life until death. Yeah, we'll spend our time on the world dying. I look back on it now, that's a dumb plan. But not only was it dumb, it was mine. See, that's the problem with your own plan for living. It's yours. You don't want to let it go, because it would hurt. It would mean you were wrong. <laughs> I got a lot of my plan from kids in the neighborhood. Some of it from my parents, some of it from the church, some of it from the school, and a lot of it on the doors in the men's room. Some of the world's greatest philosophers have written things in there. And I, you know, when you're real young, you read them, and you go, hmm, I didn't know that. <laughs> and when you're self-centered and full of pride, you don't want to go out and ask anybody. So you file it away as maybe. God, that's amazing, but maybe it is true. Maybe it isn't. Hmm. All I'm saying is I was a typical teenager. Wandering around, what in the hell's going on? But trying to pretend like I was cool. 
Look at that guy. He knows everything that's going on. And then everybody else is trying to pretend like they know what everything's going on, and I'm falling for it. <laughs> and I even back then, I was comparing my inside with everybody else's outside, and I said, I'm the only one who doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> everybody else does. And I finally arrived in college, and I had not had a drink. Um, there was some deal. If you didn't drink, you were 21. You got... Uh, I forget, 350,000 years off in purgatory. It was a deal there. And, uh, I knew I was going to need it. In the um, late 40s, up in the uh, New Haven, Connecticut area, our neighborhood had a, a tremendous epidemic of impure thoughts. And... Uh, the epidemic focused in on my house. So to counter that, I was going to stay, not drink till I was 21. You can see I had a hell of a program going. <laughs> so I got down to Yale University, and I was a freshman. That was my hometown. They had all these sophisticated guys from all over the country arriving there, and they all knew all about life. They were cool. They dressed them just right. And I was hanging around in those rooms, going to these social functions, not drinking. Everybody else was drinking, and my roommates were going, why aren't you drinking? And I felt out of it. I didn't know anybody. And these guys all had that aloof look. You know, like they're looking down their nose at you, just going, hello over there, hello over there. Who are you? Who are you? And all that. And I'd get in there and I'd say, okay, tonight I'm going to walk right in and start talking and shaking hands and everything. And I'd get in and then I'd back out the door again. I'd go, tomorrow night I'll go in and mix and meet people and it must be an instruction book on how to break into these crowds and say hello to these people and how do you uh, get a conversation started with somebody like, you know and you mill around the edge of the room and pretty soon people start staring at you who is that guy <laughs> then you see that and you see all that hostility so you leave uh, that's the typical neurotic solution to problems walk away and then the anxiety level goes down uh, and one night I picked up a drink in the middle of all this hostility. I said, yeah, it must have been 35, 40 guys in there, all that. <sighs> Nobody's saying anything to me. And uh, I pour the drink down. I'm waiting for this thing to happen that everybody's telling me is going to have nothing happen. Now, the thing, I said, well, there must be water in here. Nothing is happening. I have another drink. And I'm sitting there waiting for something to happen to me. And all of a sudden I look up and I can't believe my eyes. They've taken all of those guys out and replaced them with the most friendly crowd of people. <laughs> I, uh, I looked out there. I said, where, where do these people come from? <laughs> Everybody in the room was going, hey, Sandy, get over, come over with us. Hey, 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 tell us a joke. Man, you are the greatest. I'm getting hugs and everything. I'm going, Jesus. And I got the first promise of vodka. You will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle you. <laughs> and I said, hey. I say that a lot. I preceded George Carlin saying that. Hey. <laughs> I got the answer. I have the answer. In all seriousness, I didn't realize I had said that. But in my mind, after just a few hours with alcohol, I realized I had come across something that could solve all of life's problems. That's how important it was. This stuff contained the power to give me answers, to give me courage, to give me serenity, to give me strength when I needed it, to give me peace to go to sleep, 
gave me extra energy to deal with people. It gave me compassion, love. It gave me everything. When I went later on, when I got married, I had six children, and, and I'm sitting in my self-centered world, never having related to anybody, and I'm going, hey, I see the people on television. They all hug their kids, and they do all that. And then I would have two drinks, and right at that moment, then I could feel love, and I could show all these wonderful things, and I would remember now, okay, hug, kiss, and these are the things you're supposed to do. And I was learning how to uh, go through the motions of emotions, because the alcohol was dulling and denying all emotions. So I became, like so many of us alcoholics, we're just trying to learn by rote what it would feel like to love someone. And... And then you wonder, is this it? Is this what it's all about? And, and the only way that I could even improve it was to drink more. Because as the illness progressed, we all know the chemical effects of the alcohol wearing off and it makes us feel even worse the next day than we did the night before. And now we're drinking because we drank the night before and so on down. So this answer that I sought and on the first night that I drank was like a detour in my growing up. I was chugging along. I was about to be forced into dealing with... How the hell do you get to know? You know, that fundamental social interaction question. I was just right there. I had, life had put me where I was supposed to solve this when I came up with an alternative solution, a detour to the straight and narrow. I didn't have to follow this growing up path. I could go down this one. And that's where I made a wrong turn. And I just used alcohol all the way till I got the alcohol stone. So I didn't know I'd made a wrong turn. I thought I'd found an easier way. I thought I had really stumbled onto a secret. You know, it's like, ha, ha, you sit over in the bar going, look at all those jerks <laughs> that don't know what we know. <laughs> They're out there. I had a great aversion to a thing called the straight and narrow. You ever heard anybody talking about the straight and narrow of getting up in the morning and going to work and doing the best you can and coming home and taking care of your responsibilities and then going to bed? <laughs> morning and going to work and doing the best you can and coming home and taking care of your responsibilities and then going to bed and then get up the next day and go to work and do the best you can and eat your lunch and then come home and go to bed and then get up the next day and go to work and I'm going, hey, you could die of boredom. <laughs> that is not the life for me. I see no value in that. What value is there in plodding along, doing the right thing? Anybody can do the right thing. Oh, yeah? Did you ever try it? <laughs> I can only last about an hour. And then I heard something over here that said, hey, forget the right thing. Let me introduce you to the wrong thing. Hello there. I know you're wrong, but you're beautiful. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? The massage parlors aren't on the main highway. They're over here on the uh, sidelines. All the action and the music is not down the straight and narrow. I, I saw nothing of value plodding along down the middle of the road. So I spent most of my life over in the boondocks, <laughs> off the beaten path, wandering around, looking for something. I have no idea. And I realize now, in retrospect, what I was doing, and by the way, I ended up um, joining the Marine Corps, became a jet pilot, I flew for the Marine Corps for 14 years, I ended up um, having withdrawals in airplanes, and um, I just uh, suddenly, there was a basic distrust of the pilot of the plane I was in, which was me, and... So I went to the flight surgeons, and they uh, agreed we had a serious problem, and um, I was retrained, and they didn't want me to fly anymore as an air traffic controller. And, uh, 
Then I spent... This is just a thumbnail cut. Then I spent my last year drinking as an air traffic controller and eventually had convulsions and seizures that got me into the nut ward and eventually into alcoholics now. So there's the whole drinking story. Meanwhile, back to alcoholism. <laughs> See, that stuff is just the background music. That's where the scenery, where the action was going on. That's not the action in alcoholism. Find the jet planes around and the family and the beef and overseas and in the here and all of that. That's just the uh, fringe areas, you know, the um, scenery. The main event is going on inside. The main event is going on in my head, in my heart, in my soul. That's where the combat zone is. That's where the fight is. That's where all of it is. And that's where the illness was wrecking this human being. And my primary function was, number one, deny it. Never let anybody know there was anything wrong because they might probe in there. And heaven forbid we should find out well, how bad it is, might have to do something about it. And I'm not going to do anything about any of this stuff till I die. Remember, that was my plan. I'm going to go all the way through life, never dealing with anything, and in the last second, one minute before I die, I'm going to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> And uh, I'm so grateful for a convulsion <laughs> that interrupted my plan and got me in that nut board and got me into Alcoholics Anonymous where I started learning a new plan. I'm not sure I'm learning a new plan or unlearning an old one, whichever way you want to put it. What I learned was how to deal with all that past, how to deal with all of those things that I had taken uh, so many years to mess up through the first nine steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which enabled me to come to grips with all of these things, to recognize I was lost and now I was found, to not blame myself but to take responsibility for every single one of those things without any blame, to go back and look at it as honestly and fearlessly as I could with your help and to bounce these ideas off of you. Truth is a three-dimensional thing and it only can be brought out by sharing it with somebody else. There's no way that I can see the truth alone. That's another reason I desperately need everybody else. I have to run my ideas by you in order to see if they have any validity, whether they have any spirituality, whether they're worthwhile. That's why we have committees. That's why we have groups. That's why we have group consciences. It was designed this way so that people are forced together. Because on our own, we may choose to remain aloof and alone and cool and dumb. <laughs> and so I was I was forced into these damn groups I was forced in here and I was driven in to our tenth step as a way of life I was driven into the plan for daily living I was driven in to this thing and I'll tell you what I used to think about days I'm going to talk about this in the Superdome this is how I thought of a day my best analogy was the pinball machine that was the world and I was one of those balls down in there. <laughs> and I'm down in the dark with a bunch of other guys. <laughs> and I'm being real cool in there. And I'm just lying down. And all of a sudden, and I'm liking it. I like it in there. It's dark and nothing happens. <laughs> and all of a sudden, somebody puts a quarter in there and the alarm clock goes off. <laughs> I go, oh, Christ. <laughs> the next thing you know, I can hear all that whirring and the vroom going on. And the next thing you know, bam, you're up. <laughs> in the bright light, you hear the talking and running. You're going, oh, I know something bad's going to happen. Something bad is about to happen. 
I've just been forced out the front door of my house. <laughs> my wife is pushing me off to work again. I don't want to go out there. Just in case we don't want to go, they pull that thing back and boom! <laughs> And here comes another typical day. And out of the corner of my eye, I'm looking down there and I can see that little hole. It's my favorite watering hole. And all I want is a damn day to get all around and get in that hole. And it's getting close, man. The day is finally over. I got about four more inches to go. I can see I'm just coming in there. Some jerk gets the flipper out. Bam! <laughs> all the way back to the top. Bam, 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 bam. Someday you stay up there forever. <laughs> and come back to it and go, oh, man, what a day I had. Hey, down there with other guys. Oh, that was really bad, really bad, really bad. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. You go out and you don't hit anything. You ever see a ball like this? goes up and goes, mm. <laughs> What I thought the solution to life was, was to learn how to have a day like that every day. How can you just go up and not hit anything? Mm. And come down. Came into Alcoholics Anonymous and you start telling me, no, it's really not the way life works. You don't go out and explain yourself to the world carefully and ask them to adjust to you. <laughs> I thought my problem was I wasn't sufficiently briefing you. <laughs> and I was willing to take the extra time and effort to explain one more time how I like my toast. <laughs> I'll even put it in writing. I'll take the time and stay up hours late at night writing out in great detail exactly how I want it done. And I'll share it with you all if you only pay attention. And little did I know you were out there going, this is how I want it done. And you were writing out instructions. And I came in out of Los and you came and said, this is a spiritual solution. We are going to, everything happens backwards in spirituality. You win by surrendering. Well, I never heard that. I'm in the Marine Corps. I don't know what page that's on. Because <laughs> we're not fighting a war with Japan. We're fighting a war with you. And the way you win is to surrender. And there's a lot of these paradoxes. And the one in the tenth step that sticks in my mind is the spiritual axiom, which says that there's something wrong with me no matter what the cause. If something disturbs me no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with me. That was the greatest insight I ever had. You mean if I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me? Yes, you're disturbed. That's what's wrong with you. I know, but it's his fault. No. Fault is not the problem. Disturbed is the problem. Let's get undisturbed. We can get you undisturbed spiritually without changing anything out there. We have a power that can give you inner peace without changing what that person did. I said, I don't believe a power can just change somebody without changing those people out there. They said, what if I could used to do? 
I said, it used to change how I felt without changing the people out there. I said, you of all people ought to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to serenity and sanity. We're going to give you a power that loves you instead of one that hates you. We're going to give you one that really cares, and you're going to have to learn this lesson, that you are the one that can change. Your ability to change is your ability to have serenity. Your ability to recognize that the disturbance lies within you is your ability to correct it. And it's a very simple plan. It simply recognizes that that is the turning point. When I'm disturbed, my job is to get undisturbed, and I can do it all by myself with the steps and with this program. I don't have to get the world to change at all. Rather than being Johnny One Note, there was a World War II song called Poor Johnny One Note. All he knew how to play was one note on his saxophone, and he couldn't get a job in an orchestra. And he wondered why. <laughs> he played this note, and he wanted the rest of the orchestra to play notes that were in harmony with his note. All we have to do is become better musicians. We're taught in this program how to live in harmony with the world as it presents itself to us. We're given the flexibility to go out and become a Johnny multi-note. Learn how to live in harmony with the people around us. But we're not able to do it without a power. AA's 12 steps are power tools. They can't be just worked by ourselves. We have to ask God to help them work. We have to have God for the secret. And in my opinion, the secret in this 10th step begins in the early morning when I ask for something that Bill writes in the 12 and 12. He says, the most essential element in a daily game plan is self-restraint. What I want is to wear the world like a loose garment. I would like my favorite gift to be given to me on a daily basis is a 10-second cushion between me and the world. And God's glad to give me 10 seconds between me and the world. So the world does something, and then I have 10 seconds before I have to do anything back. You know what I can do in that 10 seconds? I can think. That was the thing I wanted to avoid until I died. You remember that? I wanted to no thinking. No thinking about things. If the world hits, you hit back. Boss walks in and says, I don't like your work. And you go, I quit. He says, goodbye. <laughs> I would like to get those words, I quit, back. Now that I've had 10 seconds to think about it, I don't want to say I quit. So we ask for 10 seconds to think about it and we don't say I quit and you're told to come up to see you in the morning and they go hi 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 and you're hurting and you're tired and you're angry and you snap at them and you go get the hell out of here and go to school and then they are hurt and they cry and they walk off to school and you go I would give my arm to get those words back because it may take five years to fix that little uh, infliction of harm that came out of us before we thought came out of us, came out of our anger, came out of our pain, came out of our self-centeredness, and didn't come out of our soul, and didn't come out of our brain, and it wasn't really us. And we go, there I am again, I'm behaving just the opposite of the way I really feel. I need this cushion. And so we pray for it, and we're given 10 seconds between us and the world. All of a sudden it's a whole different world, because we're a whole different person. We've got a gift. We've got a power that we never had before, which is this ally, which is our higher power. The other thing we're given is the opportunity to forgive other people and to admit it when we're wrong immediately. We can take any situation that is presented us on a daily basis that may disturb us and become undisturbed immediately through the spiritual power. And once we become undisturbed, many times we don't care whether somebody else was at fault. 
in a fit of anger, I'm liable to say to the guy, I'm going to sue you for taking my last piece of bubblegum. <laughs> but ten seconds later, on second thought, I may say, have my last piece of bubblegum that you took. Because I have... Because I have my own judgment back. It may sound like by forgiving other people, I'm giving up my choice to judge them. My choice to make decisions about it. What I'm really doing by forgiving the world and forgiving these things that happen to me, I'm getting my choice back from my anger. I'm getting my choice back from my resentment. I'm getting it back so that I can finally make the decision instead of fury. And then I make different decisions. And then the whole world changes. There's fewer injustices that occur to me on a daily basis. How many times have we heard, I came in to AA and your family straightened out. I came in to AA and my job straightened out. I came in, all we did it was an inside job. We're given the marvelous tools here. We're given this wonderful thing. I want to close, and it's funny that um, Craig should mention a solution. Because I wrote down, I, I, I'm too old to have been a Beatles fan. You may be too young, but when John Lennon died, there was a song in Time magazine that he had written. And the song was Watching the Wheels. And the words are, people asking questions lost in confusion. And I tell them, there's no problem, only solutions. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. No longer riding the merry-go-round. I just had to let go. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a problem-oriented fellowship. It is a solution-oriented fellowship. If you're like me and you take a problem to a discussion meeting, in your arrogance you go, I don't want to share it. But finally, in the pain of it, you may raise your hand and the leader says, yes, you want to discuss it? I say, yes. I have a terrible thing. I've just been laid. I don't have any money. I'm broke. They're knocking on the door. They're going to get me. I thought I'd bring it up at the meeting. I was hoping for a second collection. <laughs> And she said, let's discuss Sandy's problem when we go around the room. You know what the first jerk says? Have you tried the serenity prayer? <laughs> Next guy says, you have to turn it over. I said, I don't have anything to turn over. I'm broke. I don't know. What do you mean, turn it over? Next guy says, prayer of St. Francis never fails. Learn the prayer of St. Francis in the 11th step. You try the 11th step on that problem, and it's going to work. And then the last guy just says, go to me, don't drink, and it'll go away. <laughs> get a resentment because you heard this bum advice. <laughs> you come back four years, you got a sex problem. <laughs> oh, I tell you, nobody loves me. The girls are all going away. Anyway, listen, now, what should I do about this loneliness, advertising and all that? Start <laughs> around the room. Guy says, have you tried a serenity prayer? Third step, turn it over. Go on out here. You've got to be kidding me. Prayer St. Francis. Prayer St. Francis. I heard that on the money thing. <laughs> over here's the 11th step. Finally, don't drink on me. It'll go away. <laughs> Last, you bring in your problem of prestige. You just got fired. You're not the president. You don't have a job. I'm nobody in society. You go and you bring it up. Here we go. Have you tried the serenity prayer? Prayer St. Francis. All the way around to the guys that don't drink on me. It'll go away. And suddenly you realize Alcoholics Anonymous is a broken record. <laughs> It doesn't matter what problem you bring in here. You're going to get the same answer. Because <laughs> that is the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. There aren't any problems. 
There's only solutions. A 12 steps to the solution. You work the solution, you turn around, the problems are gone. Where'd your drinking problem go? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where the hell it is. All I know in the big book, it says I have a daily reprieve contingent on my spiritual condition, which is a solution, and I work on the spiritual condition, I turn around and the drinking problem isn't there. Somebody else must have it. <laughs> it was never solved. My drinking problem was never solved. It was removed. Went away. It isn't there for me to deal with. I don't fight an obsession. I don't fight a compulsion. I just go along without a drinking problem as long as I'm working on the solution. As soon as I stop working on the solution, all the problems return. So the solution is the essence of Alcoholics Anonymous. And those of you that are new, get working on it. You're going to be so excited because you're going to find that in working this solution, not only are you not going to have these problems that, that we used to have in that great magnitude, obviously we don't get rid of all our problems, they become challenges. We find out a great learning experience about ourselves. As you go digging into this mess that you thought you brought to Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going to find that they're not going to let you dig in the messy areas they're going to force you to go right to the gold inside of you. They're going to force you to extract a little bit of your soul that you had never looked at before because you didn't believe you had one. You didn't believe there was a higher power for you or one that cared about you. And this program forces it out of you. And you come to conventions like this and you say, I'm nobody, I'm not spiritual, I'm a mean person, I'm rotten. And then some guy gets up here, some gal gets up here who's brand new and your heart jumps right out of your body caring for them. And tears are yanked right out of your eyes. And then you go home and you try and explain how tough and uncaring and what a rotten person you are. We just extracted a little bit of the valuable part of you. And the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, as painful as it may be, is a refining process. It extracts the very essence and the best that lies within you. And then you show it to the new people that are coming to attract them in to this wonderful process. And what this process produces is the most beautiful people in the world. What I'm going to close with tonight is, I'm going to go back to Washington, D.C., and I'm going to tell them about my participation in this Young People's Conference. And I'm going to tell them that the future of Alcoholics Anonymous is in the most wonderful hands in the world. Thank you. <laughs>